This episode is brought to you by Loyola University, Maryland's Master of Theological Studies, offering an academically rigorous and rewarding education setting with small class sizes and renowned faculty. Learn more and apply at loyola.edu slash theology. That's loyola.edu slash theology. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be virtually with you again, Ashley. Yes. Hello, Zach. How's how's quarantine in Brooklyn? You know, it's day by day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Today, I think, is a down day. Yeah. Is it also kind of gray in, in New York? It is. Yeah. And it's just like uh, things, New York's mood just, I feel like, has continued to depress um, the further we get along into this crisis. Yeah. No, I bet. Yeah. How are you? I'm okay. Yeah, no, I, I was definitely better yesterday, Monday, when it was like a perfect 72 degrees and sunny, and I just went on a long run outside in, in my old hometown. When you're out running, it's, you know, you feel kind of normal because, you know, you would normally be alone in such a situation. So it was a nice little escape. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, uh, I, I've i mentioned several times on the podcast, not one for exercise, but uh, <laughs> I think this is a, an important time for me to at least try and get into it. Yeah, get out there. Uh, so still Lent, so we're not, not drinking anything today, but who are we talking to, Zach? So this week we're talking to Professor Winston Black, who is an author and a professor of me- medieval history. And so the reason we brought him on the show is because his work focuses on the intersection of medicine and religion in the Middle Ages. And so right now he is in very high demand because there was a very prominent uh plague and pandemic that happened in the Middle Ages. Right. So we're, we're one of many interviews he's given in the past couple weeks. Um, and he's very careful about the analogies we draw between uh, the coronavirus pandemic and the Black Plague. There are obvious differences. Um, but he still thinks there are things we can learn about the way that society reacts to the virus and what it takes from that reaction moving forward. So it's a really great conversation. Yeah, and also focusing on what the church did to adapt to the situation and uh, what the church could learn today. But first, we've got Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So just thought we'd talk a little bit about uh, Pope Francis's extraordinary uh, Urbi et Orbi blessing that happened last Friday. Um, have you seen some of the images that came out of that, Ashley? I have. I wasn't able to watch it live on Friday, but thankfully it was, you know, recorded. So I was able to tune in later and it is striking. Um, Urbi et Orbi means uh, to the city and world. So this was Pope Francis's address and benediction uh, for the city of Rome, uh, the entire church and the entire world, really. But it was done from an empty St. Peter's Square. Yeah, it looked very, uh, it was raining. It was dark in Rome. The square is empty. Very, what I said on Twitter was that it was eerie and holy at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as we said, it was an extraordinary uh, Urbi et Orbi blessing. So that normally is only delivered on three occasions. Uh, one is right after a pope is elected. And then two times throughout uh, every year, uh, once on Christmas Day and once on Easter. So this is uh, very out of the ordinary. 
Right. And so during this blessing, he he we first heard the gospel that Pope Francis chose himself for the occasion. It was it was the story of the disciples in in a boat in the middle of a storm and Jesus is sleeping and they cry out to him, you know, save us. Um and Pope and the Pope chose this and then gave a reflection on it. Um that was I would say challenging, maybe. Would you agree? Yeah, especially because he focused a lot on the disciples crying out like don't you care mm-hmm. if we perish or not? Um, and co- sort of compared that to our, our current situation, you know. Um, yeah, because you hear a lot of people saying, you know, where is God in this pandemic? Um, which I think is a very natural question. It's a question that I've had. And and Pope Francis's point is, if, if you think you love the world, think about how much more God loves it. So so what is what we're called to right now is not to question what God's doing, but to question our own reactions in the pandemic. Yeah. And sort of, I I was moved by that sentiment as well. The God loves this world more than any of us. uh, And so any weeping that we're doing throughout this, God is also weeping. Um, I'm wondering uh, what were some of your like reactions to it? Uh, The mood, the, it felt like a very historic occasion. Yeah, it did. Um, I was most struck by just the imagery of it. So Colleen, Dully and Jer- Jerry O'Connell talked about this on our sister podcast, Inside the Vatican. And Jerry talked about how Pope Francis, he was really alone in this. He wasn't surrounded by acolytes. It was him and his master of san- ceremonies out there in this empty square alone. You know, it was kind of reflecting what a lot of people are going through right now. This, a lot of our squares are are empty in cities across the world. And a lot of us are stuck in our houses and, and feeling lonely. Um, so just kind of like seeing the Pope in that setting when we usually see him kind of surrounded by crowds. I found that really moving. So there were two uh, religious devotional items brought out um, for this. One was the ancient icon of uh, Maria Salus Papali Romani, and the other was a 16th century crucifix. Um, both had been used in different times in Rome's history as items to have been like processed or venerated in times of, uh, of plague or pandemic. Um, and there have since been reports that the crucifix has maybe been pretty seriously damaged from the rain. Um, and some people are really upset about that. I found myself super moved that, you know, this is sort of what it's for, right? This is what our sacraments, our sacramentals are for. They're not supposed to be like locked up behind plexiglass or protective glass and sort of in a dusty old not lit basilica. It certainly was not kept b- behind church walls when it was processed through the city of Rome to stop the plague in the 16th century. And so I thought this is going to be one of Francis's defining moments. And it's also going to be one of the things that I at least hope that I remember about the time of coronavirus. What's our next story, Ashley? So the Vatican was not the only church with a live stream this past weekend. In England, uh, Catholics rededicated their country to Mary on Sunday. Uh, there was a live stream stream of the ceremony in Walsingham at the shrine in Norfolk. Um, and they rededicated the country to Mary in this time of crisis. What's interesting is that the ceremony had been planned three years ago. Um, and so they've had this uh, live stream set up for some time. But there was such interest, and also given that everyone is home right now, that so many people logged on to watch it that they're, that the site crashed. <laughs> yes. So, you know, on the one hand, great that so many people were interested in the event. But, you know, maybe the church could have prepared for that. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, 
I thought it was an interesting humble brag to be like, oh, we broke the, we broke the internet. Um, yeah. <laughs> is one way of putting it, but it, it, I, I was finding myself a little bit like maybe half a million is actually like pretty standard web traffic for a lot of things. So not not the most not the best look for uh, the church and its techno technological uses. But I was still really moved to see so many people coming together. I mean, we're seeing this all over between the Pope's Irby at Orby and also all the parishes doing live streams over the weekend that people are still trying to um, connect and come together for these public moments. Speaking of, they're also having to adapt in the Holy Land, right, Zach? Yeah, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem uh, has had to close its doors for the first time since the 14th century. It's the first time since the Black Plague that people have not been able to come in I was just there over a month ago. If you aren't familiar with the church, it houses the tomb of Christ. It's the site of the crucifixion as well as the resurrection. And it's visited by millions of pilgrims and tourists every year. Right. And especially in the in the time around Easter, um, you know, a lot of pilgrims come to the church and the surrounding area. They have really elaborate ceremonies. Um, they they do a stations of the cross where they carry the cross throughout the holy city. Um, and the church is shared by not just Roman Catholics, but um, the Eastern Orthodox and Armenians, and they all have their own ceremonies. Um, and so they're not they're not going to be able to do those this year. It looks like the church was initially closed for just a week, but it looks like it's going to be longer than that. But there's a new uh, there's some new uh, virtual efforts being made to sort of make this more accessible to people all over the world, right? Right. So th- this was kind of planned because they were expecting so many visitors this year um, during the month month of April because uh, Easter and Passover all f- fall at the same time. So this, the director of the Tower of David Museum had created this virtual reality experience of the city's holiest sites, and she's going to make those available online for free starting April 9th because she's, you know, so many pilgrims who wanted to come are no longer able to because of the virus. Yeah, and so you're, you'll be able to see not just uh, some of the Easter ceremonies at the Church of the Sepulchre, but also um, some of the Ramadan prayers at the Alaska Mosque, and uh, as well as the um, priestly blessings for Passover at the Western Wall. Right, and these were filmed years ago, so it's they you know they're fil- filled with people, so it gives you an experience of being present there with others, even if you're stuck at home. What's our next story, Zach? So on March 23rd, Colorado Governor Jared Polis signed a bill repealing the death penalty in the state, making it the 22nd state to abolish the death penalty. Right. We wanted to bring you some some good news this week. Uh, Sister Helen Prejean, a former guest of Jesuitical and noted death penalty abolitionist, took to Twitter to praise all the uh, citizen activists in Colorado who who uh, made it a life affirming day in Colorado. So we we join her in celebrating that. Yeah, and there were um, a few uh, prisoners who had their sentences, their death penalty sentences commuted as a result of this. Um, and I thought this related well back to a point about coronavirus that maybe gets uh, not as much attention as it should, but the prison populations, uh, they can't socially distance right now. And so there's a huge concern about what happens when, not if, an outbreak occurs there. Yeah, no, that's that's a huge problem. I know in New York City they've started uh, releasing some older prisoners um, who would be especially vulnerable, but but probably not enough. I were definitely not enough to to keep the population safe. No, and I just thought this story and maybe some of 
the calls that we've been hearing to release more prisoners is I, this crisis is sort of presenting us as a society with an opportunity to become more tender and more merciful in a lot of places. And, uh, I think that's worth encouraging, um, wherever we see it, whether it's in our homes or in our politicians or in our church leaders. Joining us from Halifax, Nova Scotia, is Dr. Winston Black. He is an author and professor of medieval history whose work focuses on the intersection of medicine and religion in the Middle Ages. Welcome to Jesuitical, Winston. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I imagine a lot of people want to talk to you right now, given your your specialty. Yeah, absolutely. A, a lot of people want to hear about the Black Death these days. Yeah. And I actually saw you tweeted yesterday um, a flow chart. You know, it starts at the top. Should I make a Black Death analogy? And and most of the flow chart says, no, you shouldn't. Yes. So we'll, we'll proceed with caution in this interview to make sure we're not we're not forcing you to make any bad takes. Good to hear. <laughs> but to start, can you just, um, you know, we are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and this, there's a lot of uncertainty and people are looking for answers wherever they can find them. And one of those places is, is history. Um, so can you start by giving us a quick overview of the Black Death? Um, how many people died? When did it peak? What parts of the world uh, were most affected? Sure. Be glad to. The Black Death is the most famous outbreak of plague in human history. It's uh, been with us for several thousand years, but the the best-known outbreak uh, occurred in the 14th century in the years 1347 to 1351 in Europe and the Middle East. It probably also struck Asia and Africa as well, but those areas haven't been studied as well. Plague is caused by a bacterium, Yersinia pestis, and uh, most famously, it manifests in human beings uh, in what we know as bubonic plague, when our lymphatic system is overwhelmed with trying to fight this bacteria in our bodies. And without antibiotics uh, in the Middle Ages or today, death is very likely from the plague. So uh, we don't have a census of living or dead people from the Middle Ages, but reasonable estimates say that at least half of everyone died in areas where it struck. So we're looking at probably about 50 million people in Europe and upwards of 150 million across all of Eurasia and Africa just in the 14th century outbreak. So your expertise in looking at this um, is the intersection of medicine and religion. So can you talk a little bit about the church's role in this? And maybe I know there are myths out there that you've spent time debunking. So maybe telling us what those myths are and what the reality was. Sure. So when we're looking at the Black Death in the 14th century, uh, especially in Europe, this is, of course, a profoundly religious era when the Roman Catholic Church was almost entirely uh, the only religious body in Europe. Uh, There are small numbers of Jews in a few communities, and 
if you're a Christian who's not following the Catholic Church, you're deemed a heretic. So almost everybody in Europe is essentially a Catholic in this period. So they turn to the Roman Church for advice on how to understand what's happening in the world uh, around them. Why is everybody suddenly dying from this unknown disease? And the church's answer that's taught by the Pope and the bishops and the local priests is that sin is to blame. Uh, What sin exactly wasn't clear, but uh, that would be the basic reaction that God is angry at humanity because of their overwhelming sins, and God is punishing everyone in the world uh, with this catastrophic disease. But of course, the church also offers hope uh, that through the sacraments of the church and attendance at the rituals of the church, you can perhaps cleanse your soul of sin, protect yourself from the plague, or a community can work together to appease God's anger and get him to lift uh, the plague from humanity. What was some of the medical thinking about that at the time? So you mentioned myths uh, about the plague or about the Middle Ages, and a persistent myth is that the church was in some ways against medicine or science. They simply weren't in the 14th century. It was fully accepted that any reasonable individual should avail themselves of both religious and medical remedies. God gave us the knowledge to identify medicines and use them. On the medical side, the understanding was, yes, God sent the disease in the first place, but God worked through nature to corrupt the air, to create what they called a pestilence. So most remedies would take the form of trying to get rid of that bad air or preventing it from entering your body. So some of the best remedies for making sure plague didn't come in the first place involved smoke, fire, or strong smells. Uh, Very often there would be recommendations to uh, burn pitch or petroleum, create noxious black smoke that sounds dangerous to us, but they believed it would perhaps kill the pestilence in the air, or something a bit more pleasing, you would protect your face or your body with uh, vinegar, with um, strong-smelling herbs and spices. If you're wealthy enough, you can get um, good spices from Asia, like cloves and cinnamon. All of these were believed to work on the idea that they prevent the bad air from entering your body. So practices like that, um, you know, they probably aren't based in, you know, obviously in modern science, but I don't know, something like a strong scent might have the end effect of creating social distance. So was that kind of part of the goal or was it recommended at all at that time? It was eventually, uh, by which I mean, by the end of the 14th century into the 15th century, plague kept on coming back. And that's one of the things that's terrifying about it. It wasn't just the Black Death of the 1340s, the worst. Every 15 to 20 years, plague returned with new outbreaks. What we start to see is a greater understanding that plague is contagious. It might seem obvious to us, but in the original Black Death, as I said, it was felt that God is punishing all of humanity. So the reactions were more on a personal level. 
how do I help my own soul? How do I help my own body? So we don't find that much social distancing. But as we get into the second and third outbreaks of plague in Europe, these are in the 1360s and 1370s, we start to find the first examples of quarantine. Uh, quarantine comes from an Italian phrase uh, meaning 40 days. Initially, it was a 30-day break, uh, but they extended to 40 days in the cities of Ven- Venice and Florence and elsewhere on the Mediterranean. It's not so much social isolation. It isn't the idea of literally separating yourself from your neighbor, but it was the idea of protecting an entire community or city. They would shut down the ports. They would prevent uh, foreign ships from entering. They would close the gates to foreign merchants uh, in order to hopefully stop the disease from at least um, entering their one community. So even though they don't have germ theory, they don't understand that plague is caused by bacteria or that uh, cold or flu is caused by a virus, they're observant. They can see that many diseases are caused by close proximity to other people who are sick. It sounds to me like the hard line between religion, medicine, and maybe even superstition, it's not as, uh, the line's not as clear um, as we might think of them today. Is that, is that the case? That's definitely the case. Uh, so often in the modern world, I think especially since Darwin in the 19th century, the line between science and religion uh, has grown wider and wider. But in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, there could be an easy overlap between the two. I mean, it's really worth remembering that most universities were religious institutions, first and foremost. And the church actually supported education in science and medicine. And many practicing physicians were also trained clergy members. Uh, So here we see, especially in the case of the Black Death, where doctors recommend that you go to your priest to confess your sins. And you have priests who likewise say, yes, confess, but you can also go get a natural remedy from your local doctor. So they didn't see any uh, clash between these two worlds. And even the even the natural remedy from the doctor sounds a little bit, I mean, what we would consider, quote-unquote, superstition today. Yes and no. I mean, it, it seems super t- superstitious because it's wrong, but um, where we might want examples of much, <laughs> much more superstitious reactions Not only do we have calls to use vinegar or herbs or smoke, but there was a brisk market in buying magical charms, Mm. um, saying uh, special prayers or songs uh, that were believed to protect you uh, from the plague. Now, some of these could be explicitly religious, calling on a Christian saint, but others smack more of of magic and uh, use... um, magical spells to fend off the plague. One thing we're noticing today um, amid coronavirus uh, is the church kind of having to adapt its pastoral response to the fact that people can't gather in large groups. Um, you're not supposed to you know, receive the sacraments in person. Uh, I'm wondering what how the church's uh, presence with regular people changed during the Black Plague. How did they uh, Zoom their uh, 
their masses? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great question. Because, yeah, that, here's one example where we can see um, modern churches fully taking seriously uh, the medical understanding of how disease is spread, and specifically in this case, um, protecting us from the, uh, the coronavirus. Sadly, we see the reverse uh, in the Middle Ages, that even though educated church members, uh, the priesthood, might see the disease as contagious, they would nonetheless recommend that people go to church more than they had before, that they confess their sins to their priest or potentially to someone else um, more than they had before. Uh, and we see calls for religious gatherings that hadn't necessarily happened before. One of the favorites were, were religious processions. The Pope and many of the bishops wrote to all of the priests in Christendom, said, you need to get your flock together, organize a procession around your church, around your town, around the marketplace, praying, beseeching God's forgiveness. Now, we, of course, look back and say, don't do that, <laughs> because they're gathering in even larger uh, groups than they had previously. But it was felt that if God is angry at all of humanity, then if we're to make God happy again, we need to work together as an entire Christian community. So, yeah, sadly, from our perspective, uh, People seem to gather in even greater groups in some cases in the time of the Black Death. Are there any sort of pastoral adjustments that are made to sort of respond at all, Bes besides the ones that you just mentioned that are obviously having a negative impact on the spread? Yes, uh, definitely. There, there's a recognition from the church authorities that their main responsibility, uh, the, the caretakers of souls, is that assuming the people die, which is sadly the, the assumption that they came to, they need to make sure that people can die uh, fully confessed and be buried in consecrated ground. And so we see church authorities all the way up to the Pope really bending the rules in times of emergency. Because so many people are dying, millions of people dying, uh, we get bishops who consecrate almost any piece of ground they can find as acceptable burial ground for the plague pits that are being dug in this period. And in one of the most dramatic cases, the Pope himself, Clement VI, down, uh, he's actually in Avignon at this point rather than in Rome, he consecrates the river. The river Rhone runs the city of Avignon with the understanding that so many are dying that people are dumping bodies into the river. And so he gives people an opportunity. He says, okay, the river itself counts as uh, a consecrated burial ground. We also find something that shocked some observers uh, in this period. Confession is, for your average Christian, possibly the most important sacrament, uh, confession and penance. Even more than the Eucharist at this time? Yes, even more. I mean, this may, may shock modern Catholic listeners, but your average Christian is still not going to church that often um, for Mass and Eucharist, uh, only a couple times a year. But they're going to confession much more regularly. And ideally, you confess to your own priest. Uh, you can, with permission, confess to other priests or to a passing monk or friar, but some of the bishops, with papal approval, um, sent out the message, you can confess to anyone. 
And one of these uh, Episcopal letters uh, says, sort of with dread, even to a woman. Uh, this, yeah, I mean, it, it might seem sadly laughable to us today, but yeah, to someone in the 14th century, this is unheard of. Uh, but uh, they're opening up the possibility, God will hear you. And of course, this is what uh, Pope Francis himself said just a few days ago, in this time of isolation, God will hear you. Uh, you can confess to yourself or to God, uh, a God on your own. So we see a similar bending of the rules in time of emergency. Yeah, and the, this suggests that I mean, the church was, even if it was misguided in some ways, was was doing what it could to to you know be present to people, to you know save their souls, get them to heaven. So you know, in that way, it's it's admirable, and I imagine that priests were, you know, greatly affected by this if they were still still meeting with people, still leading processions, giving confession. What what was the effect on the priesthood? Yeah, that's where we see, I think, something that's both devastating and impressive. Because when we have records of death tolls, or at least uh, death percentages, it looks like priests and uh, monks and nuns are dying in even greater numbers than the laity. Uh, now, we don't have specific records of what's happening in every village, but the way m- most of us historians' religion take this is that priests were, whenever possible, attending the sick and dying, uh, hearing confession, performing last rites, and burying the dead. Uh, uh, this seems to be the, the best explanation for the even greater uh, death toll uh, among the clergy. Now, uh, sadly, we, we do hear only the bad news. Some priests ran away, <laughs> um, were condemned for this, but it looks like in most villages the priests died because what we, the records we do have is in the year or two after the Black Death, almost every bishop in Europe is scrambling to find replacements for the dead priests. Uh, where almost everywhere they need to find uh, people. And they start, again, we're talking about this bending the rules. They reduce the age uh, requirements for the priesthood. They reduce the education requirements so that they can get almost anybody in to serve these communities. Wondering if we could shift to today a little bit. Um, Are there lessons that we can learn? Um, Obviously, we're nowhere near where the Black Death is at. Um, But this is still sort of the first time for a lot of modern people that we're experiencing anything like this. And so what is, by looking back, what are some of the takeaways that we can, and maybe what are some of the more irresponsible ways of looking back and trying to draw lessons? Yeah, that's a good question because, yeah, as we brought up at the the start, that that, uh, fun flowchart about uh, being very careful about drawing any direct comparisons between the Black Death and the current COVID-19 pandemic is as devastating as it is what we're living through right now. We need to put things into perspective. Uh, I believe it's currently 35,000 dead um, globally, which is horrific, but that's nothing compared to 50 to 150 million dead. (laughs) Rather than taking medical takeaways or imitating anything that medieval people were, were doing, we need to look at the message of hope that came out very quickly uh, in the wake of the Black Death. Because while the Black Death was going on, a lot of people were saying, "Is this asking, is this the end of the world? 
But the plague passed in six to nine months in most regions. And when it passed away, people picked up the pieces. We see this from the quite good documents, especially from Italy and England. People go back to business. They ask, okay, how do we live now in a world where one out of every two people is gone? But they do. And uh, we see changes in society uh, where in some places people are paid better for the jobs that, that were done before. Um, we see uh, people asking new questions about medicine, science, and religion as they ask themselves, maybe God is was sending us a message to not take things simply at face value as they were. So I think we can see there where comparisons can usefully be drawn. We want to see what the social reactions are. How do people um, relate to each other in the best of times? rather than simply looking at death tolls or medical cures. So bringing that to today, what are what are the questions you think um, along those lines we should be asking as a church or as a country about what we want to learn, what we should carry forward from this? Oh, <laughs> as a medievalist, I try not to live in the present, but <laughs> I'm going to hide in my castle. But no, no, it's, it is a great question. Is It's... Uh, I believe this is now my sixth interview in the last two weeks. Uh, so obviously, people want to know, what are historians of disease and epidemics thinking about what we're going through now? And just as a historian and just as a human being, I think what we're seeing now is people just asking of themselves, how should I react to that stranger who's right there, seven feet away from me? we're more connected than we've ever really thought about before. Uh, we've been able to live in our own little bubbles and uh, be a few inches away from thousands of people without them really being part of our world, uh, especially when our worlds have been so digital, so media-focused. But I think it reminds us that we're bodies. We're part of nature. We're part of a disease ecosystem. And we need to think more about that person who's right there, even if we've never known them before. That's what I'm really taking away from this. I think that is a beautiful lesson to take away. Um, and difficult, for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for not only sharing your expertise with us, but with everyone who's um, asking and all of these questions right now. Um, we have one final question for you. Uh, we ask all our guests this. If you could canonize one person, uh, living or dead, uh, Catholic or not, medieval or not, who would it be and why? Oh, oh wow. <laughs> um, I'm going to, okay, I, I, I've got a good one here. Um, Heloise. Heard of her? 12th century? No. She's unfortunately best known from her torrid love affair with a philosopher named Abelard, or oh, Peter yes, Abelard. Yes. Yeah, Abelard and Eloise. Yeah, they're 12th century. French members of the church and philosophers, um, and neither of them been, uh, have been canonized. Uh, Abelard, for good reason, he was a pretty wretched individual. <laughs> <laughs> but Heloise, she, as I said, is unfortunately usually known simply for bearing Abelard's child as a teenager out of wedlock, and all we ever hear about is that. And it's been turned into this romantic love affair when it shouldn't be. 
But Eloise went, lived on for the next 50 years to become an abbess, to become a renowned author, letter writer, and philosopher and theologian in her own right. Uh, she became a close confidant of several of the major male religious figures in the 12th century. Uh, and to be able to do this as a woman who had been just a the daughter of a, a middle-class merchant who unfortunately fell into the hands of a rather lascivious uh, cleric, uh, I, I think um, says something about her fortitude and faith uh, in this period. So there's someone I'd like to see become a saint. All right. I love that. St. Eloise. Awesome. So where can people uh, find your work? Probably two places are uh, best to look me up. I tweet all the time on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Winston E. Black. Um, I use the tag Medieval Medicine, which is my main subject there. Or on academia.edu is where I post uh, a lot of my publications for people who might want to um, go a little more in-depth into my writings. Awesome. And you've got two new books out, that's right? That's right, yeah. Uh, just in the last few months, um, been a busy time. I've got a book uh, debunking uh, a number of myths about the Middle Ages, uh, one chapter about the Black Death. It's called The Middle Ages, Facts and Fictions. And uh, another book, it's a collection of primary source documents called Medicine and Healing in the Pre-Modern West. Awesome. All right. Well, we all have a lot of extra time to read, so yes. <laughs> good recommendations. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for joining us, Winston. You're welcome. It's been great talking with you. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have, Zach? So during this time when maybe you're at home more and uh, in need of some more spiritual uh, accompaniment, Jesuitical is trying to do two episodes a week uh, instead of our typical one. Uh, so you may have noticed that there was an extra episode in your feed this week. Our first one was with our boss, Father Matt Malone. Yeah, we had a great conversation with him about um, what it's like to be a priest uh, during this pandemic when you can't say mass, uh, what it's like to lead a Jesuit media ministry when a lot of people are looking for extra resources, um, and a, a more lighthearted conversation about surviving uh, Jesuit community life under quarantine. Yeah, so you're, you can find that episode. There will be more coming. And also, we're sort of trying to up the activities happening in our uh, Facebook group. Um, there have been some uh, listeners who have wanted uh, some some Zoom hangouts, some some small group face sharing. So that's going to be trialing. So if that's something that sounds interesting to you, you definitely want to check that out on facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Um, and if you're able to in any way support the show, whether that's financially on our Patreon page or by leaving us a review on iTunes um, or wherever you listen to your podcast, we would really appreciate it. It's going to help other people hear the show um, and join this community. So if you're able to, please consider supporting the show however you can. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I've got a desolation um, today. I don't know. It feels like it's different day by day, but I don't know. Right now, I, 
I'm acutely aware of how much of my prayer life is dependent upon experiences and actions and interactions with, I don't know, the world. Um, and right now, it just feels like I'm staring at a screen the entire day, and I'm not sure that, I don't know, I haven't adjusted my tuning forks to be able to like to look for God there. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, and that's a bummer, because I know that there are definitely places where the Spirit's moving. Um, like we've been having some great apartment liturgies here with my wife and my roommate and my sister. Um, and that's sort of opening us up in new ways. But generally I find myself sort of unable to focus on where God's acting in my life just because it's so different, so radically different than what normal life is like. And that's a desolation. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel that I know we're supposed to find God in all things, but I find it much easier in other people than yeah, than devices. The, it, I'm like either forced to look internally, which is scary, or look at a screen, which is scary. And yeah, yeah, different than what I'm normally doing. Um, yeah. Where what do you have this week, Ashley? Uh, I also have a desolation. Um, thankfully, it's a past desolation, so I'm in a better place now. But last week, I was still in New York um, as things were getting increasingly scary there. And I was, you know, stuck in my studio apartment alone. Um, and I was really resisting coming back uh, to my parents' house in Virginia um, because it it felt like a admission of defeat in some way. Like I had this kind of like feeling of shame and I'm looking back I know that this was the evil spirit talking but what it was saying is like like look what look what your decisions in life have brought you to like you live alone you're not quarantined with like your husband and kids like you're gonna have to go back with your parents um and so I was just kind of like dwelling in that and it it kept me stuck where I was um which wasn't a great place and thankfully you know, I was able to get out of that by talking to other people. I was, I did, had a Skype call with my, with two of my friends from college, one of whom was in a, a similar situation. And she just said out loud what I had been saying. She's like, oh, I'm so lame. Like I'm going to live with my parents and just, just saying like, yeah, me too. And getting it out loud and having our third friend be like, shut up guys. <laughs> you, you know, you're wonderful. <laughs> um, you know, uh, putting some sun sunlight on on the feelings of shame always always helps. So, in a better place back in Virginia, but there was definitely definitely a few days back last week where I was not listening to God and letting that other voice dominate. Yeah, well, I'm glad you were able to get out of your studio apartment and to Virginia because yes. it looks like I mean the CDC is now like don't leave New York, which is... I know I was really just just in the yeah. nick of time. So. <laughs> Thank God for friends. Yep. All right. <laughs> well, get us out of here, and we'll see everyone uh, in your feeds in a little bit. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Josh Whittakel is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by Loyola University, Maryland's Master of Theological Studies. 
offering an academically rigorous and rewarding education setting with small class sizes and renowned faculty. Learn more and apply at loyola.edu theology. That's loyola.edu theology.